0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Feel free to check in at the end and say hello. It's nice to meet folks who are here for the first time. So those of you who've been around know that we've been looking at this series of teachings on what are called the ten paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart, and we're specifically looking at the quality of truthfulness, and we've done that for the last couple of weeks, and now we're in this interesting place where we're interested in what does that look like in terms of speech, because the last couple of weeks I talked about this value of truth, being interested in the truth of things, as a kind of bare attention, so not, not our idea of what's true, but a more direct, a simple, but direct and immediate connecting with the experience of the body, or the sound, or the sight, but not the thought, or not confused by the concept we have. So for example, something simple like when my hand is touching something, I'll touch my other hand, so there's that touching, And of course, there may be a lot of thoughts that arise, like I'm just touching my hand, or that's kind of warm, or that's smooth. But those thoughts don't have to be a problem. What's that experience when the contact, the connection, isn't disturbed or confused by the thoughts? So what's the experience of warmth without the concept warmth? or the experience of pressure, contact, without that thought. But then, I mean, that's our training. So when we're sitting, you know, we might do that training like with the breath. Breathing in, aware of the breath in and of itself. Not being aware of the thought that I'm breathing in, but aware of breathing in as a, you know, in terms of the physicality of that experience. It might be, just the experience of the belly expanding out with the in-breath or falling in with the out-breath. But then, of course, we have to live in this relational world where we're interacting with each other all the time, where we are using language, right? Our whole world of relationship, not just particular interactions we have with other people, but just our relationship with our family, with our communities that we're a part of it all involves thought or concept so how do we take this developing value of being connected with the way it is to the truth of things then how does that express itself in terms of our speech even in terms of our thought and speech what does that look like and one way to just, to begin that, because the, you know, the first response might be, it's way too complicated. It's not easy to be skillful in terms of our speech. So we might assume the best way is just not to talk. I'm Just not going to say anything. But I think it's fair to say that we don't know. Like there may have been in the course of history, or just in the course of our own life, we might have caused more harm through our unwillingness to speak as we have through our willingness to speak and you know, all the things we've said that maybe wasn't weren't quite what right right sometimes people certainly some people in this room your way of setting emotion suffering has been more about not saying what needs to be said and maybe some of us have caused harm more often by saying something that didn't need to be said or needed to be said in another way so we can't escape the responsibilities of being a relational being in relationship right by saying like some simple i'm just not going to talk it's like saying you know the way to solve the problem of living is just not to be alive i mean that that doesn't that doesn't quite work cuz we are alive we are in relationship with each other in so many overlapping different kinds of ways. Sylvia Borstein, this well-known teacher in this tradition, she's uh, one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in uh, Marin County, just north of San Francisco, one of the main centers, retreat centers in this tradition. And uh, she's written a number of books. She has a very simple teaching, I don't know if she came up with it first, it's, it's probably something that's been around forever, but this basic teaching on right speech, and it's just a reflection that we can hold, starting now, the rest of today, all day tomorrow, for the rest of our lives, you know, as we engage our relational life, interacting with others, holding that reflective question, is what I'm about to say an improvement on silence? Or is remaining silent an improvement on just responding, you know, just like seeing what I'm going to say? So we don't always want to err on silence, but we want to be in the moment enough, respectful enough, especially in this world of speech, Another thing Sylvia says in one of her teachings that I remember is she, I think it was in one of her talks once, where she says to folks, you know, how many of you have had a physical injury, broken a leg or, you know, torn a muscle, and you're still feeling the repercussions of that injury or that disease, that medical crisis? And, you know, a lot of us would raise our hands that we have some ancient wound that we can still detect. But a lot of us have healed, like given really severe things. Some of you have had cancer and have been in remission for a long time. And then she asks, and how many have you, How many of you have been hurt by words and are still feeling the pain of that hurt? You know, and everybody raises their hand. How many people have been hurt by words five years ago? you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, who are still feeling the hurt of those words. So the pain that we experience through words, the words we speak, the words other people speak, that goes deep. Some of us probably can bring to mind memories 50 years ago or more, right? And when we bring that memory to mind, there's still... The trauma. Still the cringe. I said that or that person did that to me, said that to me. So clearly, I think it's true to say that we have this, we should and we can, if we reflect enough, have this deep respect for how easy it is to cause harm with our words. Right. So we we're willing, if we think about that, if we reflect on that, we're willing to be sensitive. It's a very interesting thing about life. I think this is one of the basic principles to living, to being a happy human being. And it's, I think, counterintuitive. And for me, it's been a real cutting edge in my practice recently. Because as a ordinary human being you know we tend to think that happiness is a function of comfort and i think this is really refers to our beastly nature like in this way we're not that different than squirrels and other mammals other maybe other animals besides mammals where we somehow conclude that it's all about being comfortable having enough food having a mate or being in community or being warm, or. And so we're just striving to be comfortable. And that's sort of our tactic or our approach to being a happy human being. But the more we understand this relational world, you know, that we're relating to each other, and in that relational world, we realize that we're undeniably responsible for how we're all doing. It's like we can't, you know, when we have the idea of comfort, having enough nuts, having a nice nest, you know, having my tribe, my group of people that I feel safe with, that whole idea of comfort is like well, I'm not responsible for your comfort. You're responsible for your comfort. I'm just responsible for my comfort. And so that whole idea involves some sense of separation, like a bubble, like my, my little bubble of comfort somehow excludes, doesn't depend on your degree of comfort. But the more we sense this relational world, you know, the more we open to that, like as I understand, my, and the, the interesting thing is the bridge into that, relationship, that relational world is not denying the sort of beastly nature of wanting to be comfortable, but recognizing it in everybody, right? Not just the other people in the room, but the squirrels and the birds and all beings, they just want some warmth, some food, some safety, right? That's what we all want. And when we're when we've sort of opened beyond just that simple beastly nature of wanting to be comfortable to the recognition that here I am in this world interacting in relationship to other beasts who just want to be safe and comfortable, then there's like there's no going back. Once we enter that world of relationship, once we realize that we are in relationship with other beings, then it's hard. It's, it's uh, suffering to go back into my world of just wanting to be comfortable. It's like i got to work at forgetting that you have needs too, that you want to be safe too, that your well-being matters to me because I relate to it. Like I relate to your suffering. I know what that's like because I have my own suffering. And I relate to any sense of you having well-being, that you're comfortable, because I know what it's like to be comfortable. So to go back means we have to go into denial. Like we have to be disconnected from what we were just connected to. So this is an interesting thing. One of the ways I talk to myself about this in terms of my practice is I can be happy, I can be comfortable. I should say, I can be comfortable or I can be free. So what do I want to do? Do I want to be comfortable? And when I'm comfortable, I'm not free because I have to be in denial that there are other beings that want to be comfortable, that want to be safe. And a lot of those beings are being oppressed. In fact, the more I pay attention, the more sensitive I become, I realize how much my comfort is at the expense of other people's comfort. You know, that's part of being in this relational world. The nuts in my nest are not the nuts in your nest. You know, whatever privilege I have or whatever wealth I have safety I have often comes at the expense of others or comes from the structures of our society that are the way that they are. They're not fair when we look at them carefully. And so this is a very interesting place in life where we have to choose, not just once, but over and over again, Do I want to seek comfort or am I willing to go into the uneasy place of discomfort and realize the freedom? Because when we go into the place of discomfort where we realize we're sharing this moment, this place called earth or whatever, we're sharing our lives with a lot of other beings we have a lot in common with. We want to be safe. We want to be warm, we want to be fed, we want to belong, you know, some of these primal things, and, and we care. We can't help, actually, but care about that. Once we know about it, once we remember there are other people here, just like me, there are squirrels who are not that different, you know, then it's hard to go back. And so, this is, uh, this is one of the things that comes to mind when we realize the potency of speech. It's like we're, everything we say and everything we don't say is making this the way that it is for all of us. You know, it's not just what we say, it's also what we do. And not even just what we do and what we say, but even what we think makes this the way that it is for all of us. It would be, you know, it's a little embarrassing, actually, a little humiliating to realize that what this all is for us, being here together, is in part what we've been doing with our mind in secret. You know, the kinds of thoughts, the fantasies, the obsessions, the lustful notions that have entered our mind. You know, this is all here. Because who we are, our affect, the energy we bring to our interactions, like even the interaction of us being in the room together, is just the cumulative experience of all of. This is what we mean by karma. There's a teaching, you know, that about karma, about intention, intentional action. That's. Uh, repeated quite often in the tradition taught by the Buddha. He said that we should reflect on, I am the owner of my karma, my intentional actions, heir to my intentional actions, born out of, like this moment as I'm experiencing it, is literally born out of the previous intentional actions related to my karma, I abide supported by my karma, my intentional actions. Whatever karma, whatever intentions I act out, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Thus we should frequently recollect. So to, you know, more specifically, reflect on this in terms of our speech. Everything we think and speak, what we don't think and speak, Whatever of that is done with intention, right? Intention, that volition, doesn't matter if nobody knows what we're thinking. It's making an imprint in our heart, our mind, right? So it doesn't matter if we get away scotch free, nobody notices we said that or had that thought or did that thing, because. The mind, this mind stream, whatever you call this thing here, right now, this mind that I'm speaking out of or that's here and now, this is the mind that had that thought yesterday or obsessed or said that thing or, right? So, whatever it is that is experiencing this moment, that is expressing itself in this moment, it is the cumulative. Result of all of that that came before. The Buddha says something like if you want to know the past, which is completely gone, right? The past exists nowhere. There's nowhere back behind us that is the past, right? It's completely gone. Except that this moment is the natural, lawful fruit of what came from before. Like, where else would the present moment come from if not the cumulative result of what was before? So if we want to know the past, the Buddha says something like, open, be awake to, be aware of the present moment. You want to know the future? He says, notice how the mind is relating to the present moment. Because this is, Karma. We create karma by intentionally relating or responding or reacting to the present moment in the way that we're doing that right now. And that's its emotion the future. So often the way we create karma is through speech. We say or think something, or don't say or think something, and there are consequences to that. That's what we mean by karmic fruit the result of intentional thought or speech or silence, right? Silence has, if it's intentional silence, I'm not going to say anything, that has consequences in the same way that saying something has consequences. And, you know, another place in the discourses of the Buddha, he says, and there is nowhere anyone can escape these karmic fruits. A lot of us think, well, If I can just die before all of those things I set in motion when I was a bad teenager, before they come bear fruit, you know, if I can just get to the end of my life, then I'm done. But, I mean, it's a mystery. And of course, I don't understand. No one can sort of say definitively. But the teaching from the Buddha is that, no, karma will express itself. Like we have this idea of rebirth, but it's often misunderstood in the Buddhist tradition as if I'm going to be reborn. But that's not what the Buddha's saying. He's saying that there will be rebirth. There will be another person that is in some way that maybe we can't understand the continuation of this mind stream now. And that person will have whatever the fruit is of Whatever this mind thought or said, that mind stream will somehow express the natural consequence. Because when something is set in motion, it will express itself. That force will have to be, you know, like if something's you throw something like a baseball, you know, it's got to hit something or it's just going to keep going. If we were in deep, deep space and you threw a baseball, it's going to go for a long time, right? That baseball, that force that set that baseball in motion, it's got to hit something before it's going to stop. A planet, a star, right? It has to hit some gravitational force. Otherwise, it will go forever. And the same thing, when we say something with intention, gossip, with intention, blame somebody with intention, hate ourselves with intention, then that sets something in motion. And it will have a consequence. It's just a question of when it ripens and then how much wisdom is there when it ripens. Oh, that's just that self-hatred. Right? We don't the mind that experiences the fruit of that karma doesn't have to be confused by it. It could just understand, oh, there's that feeling. It's just that feeling being known. Or the mind could have that feeling and then run with it, obsess with it, and set emotion more karma. So it's not about scaring ourselves, but just understanding that as a relational being, as a human being or a living being in relationship, a living being that, unavoidably is sensitive, not just to our own heart, but by extension, we realize there are a lot of sensitive hearts here in this room that experience joy and sorrow. Right? Don't you sense that? When we look around, even with our eyes closed, we we kind of get that. We can be in our bubble. I mean, often, maybe most of the time we are in our bubble, oblivious to the fact that there are a bunch of sensitive hearts around us that feel what they feel, but we can open to that. And then, like I said, then, then the difficult part comes. is like we have to interact. And hearing this kind of talk, it can, we can want to freeze up, but that's not necessarily a skillful way to engage this relation, relational world. So we have to be willing to take some chances and so we remember, like, is what I'm about to say an improvement on silence. We see silence as an option. How's that feel? What's that setting emotion? What's the reverberation of when I'm keeping my mouth shut? What's the reverberation of having said what I just said? right We're learning to attend like the heart, you could say as a sounding board like A lot of us, you know, it's nice when you have a good friend around and you can say to the friend afterward, How did that seem to you, what I said? Did that feel right? Often in the past, you know, my wife would be at some of the programs here and afterward I'd always ask her, You know, how did that seem? Was it useful? Did I seem off at any point? And it was really good to have an honest friend who would be willing to sort of tell me to give some feedback. But we have to learn how to have our own uh, feedback built in by just noticing, like, what's the reverberation in our heart having just had the day that we had or the interaction that we had? How does that feel in the body? Is there any residual uneasiness? And then when we tune into that, maybe it will, sort of like a hologram, sort of, recreate like through memory the experience oh oh yeah now i see i thought i was coming from this place but actually i was really irritated at the person or i was really needy i was acting out this need so we might in hindsight sense oh yeah and then naturally appropriately there'll be some remorse like oh that doesn't feel very good what i said what i might have said emotion and we don't know actually whether that harmed the other person we might have some sense but what we know for sure is what's left over in our own body mind heart right because we can sense that if we've cultivated this mindfulness this sensitivity oh yeah it doesn't we don't need somebody to tell us we were off because we can feel and And times, uh, other times we'll notice, you know, upon reflection, no, that that feels really clean. Given everything that was in play, that, that was about as good as, as appropriately as I could. As much as I can tell right now, that felt really good. And it won't even matter if somebody says, you know, that really hurt. Because sometimes being really skillful means other people get hurt. Right? Sometimes... When we speak what needs to be spoken and we speak it in the right, with the right motivation, at the right time, right tone of voice, right body language, people get hurt still. But that doesn't mean it was unskillful. So to tell whether it's unskillful, we have to notice here. This is the interesting thing about morality in terms of the Buddhist teachings It doesn't exist in terms of some abstract like Santa Claus or God who's deciding whether our actions, our words, were skillful or not. Morality is really based on karma, like what is left over in our heart from that action. Have we set in motion something wholesome, unwholesome, or is it no trace? That's real freedom. No, not even creating karma, right? So absent of greed, anger, and delusion. So it wasn't as somebody trying to set something good in motion. It was like nature being nature. That's sort of the deeper expression of freedom. You know, where our speech isn't so much about me trying to be skillful with my speech or avoiding unskillful speech, as much as what we say and what we don't say, is coming out of a really subtle, pure presence. Not a somebody trying to be skillful. But the first step is to be in that place where it's really easy to say something that causes harm. So I want to be full of care. I want to be really awake and use this barometer, this feedback mechanism, like noticing if there's an uneasy reverberation after I say something as feedback. Oh, what did I just say? Why does it feel like this? How might that have worked better? Right. But eventually, we're just trusting not so much the tension of trying to do it right, but just the absence of greed, anger, and delusion. Because then what we're doing is our desire to be skillful has led the mind to be radically present. And we found that trying to be skillful gets in the way of being radically present. So you see that the desire to be skillful will eventually, like because I care, because I have compassion for myself as much as for everybody else. It's not just me wanting to take care of all of you, but like I said, right here, first and foremost, is where I'm going to notice the effects of me being unskillful in my talk tonight. Like if I'm arrogant or if I'm inappropriate in some way, it might offend you, it might harm you in some way, but first and foremost it's going to feel badly here, right in my heart. So this compassion, this sensitivity, knowing that it's easy to speak in ways, to be silent in ways that cause harm, then I'm going to really be sensitive because I don't want to create harm. But then as I develop more and more sensitivity because I care about not causing harm, I'm going to realize that any identity around wanting to be careful gets in the way of being really sensitive. So we have to tease out the construct that I don't want to cause harm. But it's going to be there initially. Does that make sense? So initially, we're going to be the person who really cares. And it will feel a little clumsy. But the more we engage that, desire to care to be sensitive the more we'll tease it out and in what will we replace it is just a more simple and pure maybe even radical presence because that's what allows us to really show up and how do we know what right speech is like what we should say what we shouldn't say unless we're really really present it's like even with a talk You could spend days, and I have, you know, in the past, especially preparing for talks or for meetings or for things like that and a plan of what you're going to say. And it's not bad to plan, but what really helps us be skillful in an interaction with another person or with a group of people is being present and being authentically connected to what we're feeling. I'm sure you've had these interactions with other people where they don't really want to be interrupted because they have a plan. Their plan of how to be skillful in this moment. And their plan, they're so tied in a sense to their plan that they're afraid to show up because it might challenge their plan. And so this is what I meant about a while back when I said that we're learning how to be uncomfortable and free. right? So the uncomfortable part is like knowing that we don't know. So instead of coming in with a plan, like you, a lot of you are going to go home in a little bit and you live with other people, or even if you just live with a dog or a cat, you're going to have a relationship. You're going to have interactions. right? And you could be like, Okay, Mark said this. I'm going to be really careful and make sure I have a skillful interaction. And you'll see that doesn't work very well. Or you could say, I want to be, you know, you could connect with this deep, resonant desire like, I do not want, I know what suffering is. And the last thing I want to do is set emotion more suffering for myself or anybody. And I'm going to experiment, not trying to be skillful, but being present. Letting what I say or don't say come out of being radically present. And that's why we train so much with being aware of the body, because it's like a bridge to being with another person. Like if I can actually be intimate with my body with an in-breath, I might be able to be intimate with Mina. You know, like really show up in a moment. Because real intimacy with the body is not an exclusive relationship. When I'm actually present with the breath, with the body, with hearing, it's not like only this, only this. It's like, yes, this, it's a... An inclusive or an all-embracing yes, we might start with the body or the sensation, like what's predominant or what's um, concrete or available as an object, a present moment of object, present moment experience. We might start with the fact that you know the sits bones are connecting to the bench, pressure contacts like this. But as I open see i could train my mind that as i'm going to concentrate on that experience of my sits bones that you know the simple experience of contact and in really concentrating on that i'm going to exclude seeing exclude thought exclude everything but that experience that's what you call a focused attention but that's not what we're cultivating in this path of awakening you can do that as a meditation training where you focus on something to the exclusion of everything else and there's some value your mind will get really calm and peaceful but and that's a good training to do at times but what we're doing generally in our this path that the buddha taught is more of an inclusive awareness so when we use the body for example you're having an interaction with another human being And you take up the instruction I'm giving you, which is you kind of settle more deeply, more intimately into the experience of your body. And then the nice thing is, if you're tight, if you're afraid of the interaction you're having, you'll notice it being expressed in your body. You feel tension in your body. And then you'll be intimate with that tension, which means you'll be honestly acknowledging that you're afraid. Of interacting with this person you're nervous right and so what you say might come right out of that like I'm a little nervous it's such a nice thing to say sometimes you know in certain situations but even if it's not appropriate to say that just knowing that is really useful like you might say something uh, just to break the ice like uh, quite a snowstorm they had on the East Coast, right? And then the person says something, yeah, my mom lives in New Jersey, and she said there's 24 inches on the ground. And all of a sudden, you feel a little safer with that person because you've just realized that you can do this dance called relating. You can be in relationship with the person, and now the body, you notice because you're intimate with the body, there's a little less tension, a little less fear. So you try something you know, a little bit more scary. Like, uh, you know, what do you care about in life, or you know, whatever is next. You know, hey, I I want to. I need to talk to you about something. You know, that that thing that happened yesterday. Is it okay if we talk about that? So you go from there. And then I'll just leave with this point. So two things, just to go into your investigation. Right, all week long, because we'll talk about right speech, wholesome speech. Now for a couple of weeks, so the first thing you can take in is just this general reflection: is what I'm about to say an improvement on silence? Like always, remembering that silence is an option, but not necessarily the skillful option. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So we're just interested: is it more skillful to be silent or more skillful to speech or to speak? <clears throat> and then another more sophisticated training, and we'll go, come back to this in the weeks ahead. <clears throat> and this has been really nicely articulated in this uh, wonderful training called Nonviolent Communication. Maybe some of you have had the opportunity to get that training. It's really great. It was really big maybe 10 years ago. It's still around. NVC, it's sometimes called, Nonviolent Communication, started by Marshall uh, Rosenberg, I think. And uh, <clears throat> But the point I'm making now is is so basic it's not just specific to that training on conflict resolution it's really about understanding that when we connect with another being what we're really the the place we can connect like i talked about in terms of being beasts that just want to be warm and fed and safe and belong right some basic needs so one of the things that we can do when we're in relationship is realize that you have needs and I have needs. And so one way or another, the speech can revolve around that. Like it is so healing for somebody to be able to articulate the needs that we have, that they've listened, they've tuned in well enough to know what I hear you saying is, You really need this. I tell you, in my relationship with my wife, we've been together now since 91, and um, living together since 1991, and one of the most liberating things is when we feel safe enough to say our needs out loud, unashamed, because we have needs, So, why not be upfront about them? Maybe we'd like to be the person who doesn't have this need. But we happen, at least in this moment, to be the person that actually has this need. So, let's put it out there. We're still not there, you know, as much as we've trained and practiced, you know, it's still hard for me to, I can, I can do it but I have to practice being able to acknowledge, you know, oh, so this is what you need. Right? Because you see, it's a real stepping out of my self-absorption about my needs to be able to clearly acknowledge her needs in a way that she gets that I know her needs. And that is such a gift to the people we're in relationship to. When we hear in a way that we know they hear, they know our needs. So explore that in your interactions this, these next few weeks. Whether you say it out loud or not, in your mind, can you sense as you look, as you interact with people, that checkout person, your cat, the people you live with, people you work with, the people on the street, people you see on the news can you realize they're a human being with needs in one way or another clearly or not clearly there are they are articulating their needs can we hear them now some people you know it's complicated it's not easy to really get what their needs are so we might need to ask clarifying questions you know are you saying Did I hear you say, are you asking for this? Is this what you need? What do you need? What will make you feel safe? What are you asking for here? I'm not sure I understand what you need. What's a good resolution? What kind of resolution are you looking for here? So what I hear you saying is, right, and then, to, on the other hand, to be able to articulate our needs. I'm, I'm recognizing that I have some real needs here. Can I, can I do my best to share them with you? Do you have some time to hear them? And, I'd, and I have this need to share my needs with you. you know. And not only that, I have this need to know that you've heard it. So could you repeat back even? What I just said, so that I really sense in a deeper way that you get that I have these needs, and it's amazing, but it 's not easy. I mean, you can imagine how hard this is to do this. So I have a need to hear what you're thinking, <laughs> be nice, any questions, and in this realm, especially. <clears throat> We have learned a lot in our lives around speech, because we have, like I mentioned earlier, we have set in motion a lot of suffering, and we've avoided a lot of suffering in our speech, right? We've been skillful in moments, and be nice for people to share with each other, and of course, ask any questions. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth. So who'd like to begin? What comments or questions do you have? Yeah, I'm going to pass it back to Matt.
2: I found this to be a very captivating talk um, because I'm applying it directly to something that's happened to me very recently. I um, have some issues with a good friend of mine and um, I called her on it, but I did it in a very angry, confrontational, vindictive way. And I feel the residual effect, the residual bad karma of what has happened, but I still feel like these issues need to be addressed and resolved. Um, so I have a need to express hurt and anger, but I realize she also has a need to be respected and loved and, and uh, not hurt by me. So I, I kind of find myself in this double bind. How, how do I stay present and get my needs met and meet her needs at the same time um, and have us understand each other? Yeah,
1: but it, you might, I mean, we should always stay open to the fact that we did as best as we could have in that moment. And that's what I meant, too, about the messiness, the uncomfortableness, because it's not going to be perfect when we, as soon as we consciously, like we're consciously entering a relational world. So that means we're stepping out of our bubble of just wanting, where we're using our relationships to support some idea of comfort but now we're stepping out of that world of just trying to be comfortable and we're waking up that there are other beings that want to be comfortable too that have needs too right and that's a messy and imperfect place and we're going to make mistakes and that's okay because there's absolutely no learning without making mistakes and So it's almost like we're honing in. So as you take care of your needs, your need to express yourself, your need to uh, express your needs to her, you're also sensitive to her need for safety or to be loved or to be respected. And you see, it's like honing in. If we're sensitive to all of that, our needs, her needs, and we stay in relationship, we will hone in. We'll know if we're moving in the wrong direction because things are going to get more intensely painful. And we'll know when we're going in the right direction because things are going to become more and more easy, more free in the relationship. But we only know that if we stay in relationship, right? So this is the thing. This is why freedom depends on this uncomfortableness. Right? Did I read that? Quote from uh, Helen Keller yet? Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. I think most of you might remember Helen Keller, maybe born almost 100 years ago or something like that. And when she was a little girl, like two or three, maybe even younger, I forget, she got a bad fever and became... um, deaf and uh, blind and then didn't learn to speak for a long time. So she was in this very isolated place until Ann Sullivan, her teacher, um, kind of helped her step out of that place. So it's kind of powerful to hear those words from somebody who had a challenging life. It's either a daring adventure. And the daring part for us is the willingness to enter in relationship, knowing that we're going to be hurt knowing that we're going to hurt other people, but staying in relationship so that we get it a a little bit better each time. Each time we relate, we become a little bit more skillful at taking care of ourselves and taking care of everybody else. And we can only learn by staying in relationship. Thanks for sharing that, Matt. Who's next? Yeah, Megan...
0: Um, I was thinking about something when you were talking about needs and how um, I've noticed a change in myself in terms of understanding other people's needs and asking about them Um, because we, like we, at work, you know having to ask about a whole number of different things that are going on with people Um, in the past I used to get kind of overwhelmed with all of it and I just didn't even want to hear it (laughs) I didn't want to like Ask all of this because it was sort of overwhelming to think about, like, gosh, I can't fix most of that. Um, but I think over time I've just learned that, like, that's fine. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just like asking and acknowledging and doing what you can. And so I think that can be a barrier sometimes to, like, eliciting other people's needs is feeling like you can't do anything about them. Um, but I guess I've learned that that is okay too to not be able to do
1: anything. Yeah, that's a powerful teaching, and, and Megan's a doctor, and uh, therapists, people like me who meet, do spiritual counseling, every one of us probably has a relative that's in that s- situation where if you say, how are you doing, you're, you're going to, you open yourself up to the, this person's suffering being expressed, whether it takes a long time or just in a short burst. And this is the thing. This is, again, why the path of freedom is a path of discomfort. Like, are we willing to feel the discomfort of this person opening their heart and expressing all that's unfinished, all that's unresolved in their life, without compulsively feeling responsible for putting it all back together and making it all right? That maybe what we can do for those few moments that we're with them is we can model being present, being receptive, being unafraid. Now, in our case, we're just unafraid to hear it, right? Because that's what they have to do. They have to hear their suffering and be unafraid. It's like this. I don't know how appropriate this example is but i just recently um in early uh january read tanahisi Coate's new book um i'm spacing out the title anybody remember it he's uh the world say it again between the world and me thank you and it's uh it's really beautiful and really difficult book for uh in my case a privileged white male to read but uh and uh, you know he's an he's African-American man, and he, the book is written in the, from the point of view of writing a letter to his young teen son, maybe 13, 14-year-old son, about what it is to be a black man in America, what that means, and the injustice of, the systemic injustice of, that exists. And so hearing that, the pain, and opening to the injustice and the suffering And not uh, choosing to disconnect or come up with some pat answer or blame, you know, like somebody who I think is, you know, the Southern people or the conservative people or the this people or the. But just to take that as a window into what my heart has been mostly working on being oblivious to is real practice. And to see it as a kind of liberation. But it's a very uncomfortable liberation. But it's so much more free than having to remain in denial or unaware. And so we're, we have to cultivate a different flavor of what freedom is, or a different scent of what liberation is. Liberation is not about having a comfortable existence. It seems that way, and it doesn't mean you have to immediately get rid of your soft bed or your you know, retirement fund or whatever. It just means to start exploring the places where discomfort is showing its face in your life, whatever that might be like in your marriage, being a little bit more honest about what's not working. Like, that might actually bring you really close together or even in your relationship to your dog. Like maybe you liked your dog when it was a puppy, but not so much when it's an old dog, you know? And just kind of really being honest with that. Having a good conversation. (laughs) (laughs) We have to leave it here, but we'll come back for at least two more weeks, and maybe even longer with right speech, because it's so rich. But let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take maybe two breaths together. And appreciate the silence. It's okay to let go of the words. Have a real sense of humility with this work. It's really the starting point. So wishing us all luck in this study of speech.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.